Well, Happy New Year, everyone. A day early. This morning, Romans chapter 5, as we uh, begin our time together today. Um, many of you know, but maybe not everybody, my name is Larry. I serve with the elder team here at North Park, and it's my privilege from time to time to uh, bring the message. And uh, I always appreciate and don't take for granted the opportunities that I get to do this. And uh, this week in particular, with the holidays and to allow Phil and John to not have to prepare a sermon for today, it's at least part of the reason, and I'm always happy for that opportunity. And I get to be with you guys and to do this. And so all the way around, I feel it's a blessing. Um, so this morning, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. I'll read that in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to talk to us about sin. Yeah, I know. So we're in this series at just the right time. And last week, uh, let's go back two weeks ago, Pastor John talked about the 400 silent years and uh, where uh, the revelation uh, that Israel would uh, traditionally or typically get seemed to cut off and the Lord wasn't speaking any longer. And and, uh, John reminded us that uh, God's silence does not equal his absence, that God was there and he was at work and he was planning. And we're going to, when I get to it, uh, we're going to briefly talk about time uh, because it's important. And so I appreciate Andy's uh, work this morning, even on that with the kids. That actually fits hand in glove with what we're doing here. Um, The nature of time, because we're time-bound beings. Uh, but in that, so then last week, Phil, with that, at just the right time, Jesus was born, and, and the hundreds of prophecies uh, given way beforehand that would happen, starting all the way back there with Genesis 3:15, that that one is going to come, and he's going, to, you're going to bruise his heel, but he'll crush the head of the serpent. And the Lord did that, and it's an amazing, amazing thing. And today, at just the right time, Jesus died. It wasn't a happenstance; didn't happen by accident. It was at just the right time. But first we need to talk about sin. And so this morning, uh, sin has been called cosmic treason by R.C. Sproul. This is Sproul. The sinful, I know it's, it's long, but it, I think it's helpful. The sinfulness of sin. Uh, we tend to downplay. The sinfulness of sin sounds like a vacuous. That is empty redundancy that adds no further information to the subject under discussion. However, the necessity of speaking of the sinfulness of sin has been thrust upon us by a culture and even a church that has diminished the significance of sin itself. Sin is communicated in our day in terms of making mistakes or of making poor choices. Calling sin making poor choices is true, but it's also a euphemism that can discount the severity of the action. The decision to sin is indeed a poor one. But once again, it's more than a mistake. It's an act of moral transgression, or as he titled his piece, sin is cosmic treason. That's where we stand outside of Christ. We're in treason to the creator of the universe. Sin is cosmic treason. I want to mention with us before we jump into our text... Before we jump into our text, I want to uh, mention three states or three conditions of sin to help us to process this a little bit. Uh, All of us, even those of us in Christ, can struggle with this, but particularly the person who does not know Christ, this is where they're at. Sin has been defined as any want or any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. That's sin. Anything that transgresses or does not conform to the law of God. 
Now, this will include sins of uh, omission or commission. In other words, we sin passively when we don't do what we know we should. And we sin actively when we do those things that we know we shouldn't do. This is sin. And we're not sinners. I want to, I want to make this clear, uh, this sentence. Hear this sentence carefully. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're sinners before we sin. This is known as, uh, this is known as the, our default condition. This is original sin. Original sin was not the sin of Adam. It was the result of the sin of Adam. Adam's sin, and in Adam's sin, all men and women fell. In our original default condition, original sin, we're sinners by nature. The theologians would say, for the lost person, not possible not to sin. In other words, shot through with sin, everything we do is tainted with sin outside of Christ. The difference that Christ makes in our life is that it is now possible to not sin. Outside of Christ, impossible to not sin. Everything shot through with sin. We need to understand that. That's original sin. Uh, Total depravity. We're as bad off as we could be outside of Christ. Not as bad as we could be. Even Hitler loved his mother and wept when she died. So not as bad as we could be, but as bad off as we could be. There's a, there's a gulf between us and God. That's original sin. Now here's three ways that it manifests itself. Number one is in transgression. In transgression, an infringement or violation of a law, command, or duty. We've transgressed. In the day you eat of it, Adam was told, the fruit, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And in transgression, and what, are we, what, what can we do? We cannot wash away our own sin. The, the solution is vicarious atonement. And, and that word vicarious, just don't get intimidated by, by the word. It means in, be, in place of or on behalf of. Someone has to atone for us because we can't do it going to pay for your own sin, you'll spend all of eternity working on it and never pay the debt. Somebody sinless has to pay the price. And that was our Lord. And so the text here from 2 Corinthians, He made Him, Jesus, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Through His atonement, Jesus, who knew no sin, took our sin, there's imputation, our sin, put onto Christ on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, Christ's righteousness put on us. Transgression of the law, number two, debt. Debt, we bear a debt. The state of being under obligation to pay or repay someone for an offense made or for something received. We have this unpayable debt. We've transgressed the law of God. In the day you sin, you will die. Now what? This debt, I can't pay it. Justification by faith. Justification by faith. This is the declaration of the Father based on the faith you have in the atonement that Jesus made and the blood that he shed, justified, declared not guilty on the base of the righteousness of Christ alone. And so our text in Romans 4, 4 4-5, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But the one who does not work, that's the person who turns to Christ. I can't do it. 
But the one who does not work but believes in him who justified the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's where that's where that's all of our salvation right there. We're declared just and righteous on the basis of our faith in the work of Christ alone. So we're we're transgressors who owe a great debt. And number three, we're at war, or enmity is the word uh, that we'll see often in our Bible. James 4, 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. That is animosity, hostility, animus. Uh, we're enemies of literally enemies of God. And what are we going to do? Again, there's this great gulf. And what do we do? The, the solution is reconciliation. Be reconciled with Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God because outside of Christ, you're the enemy of God. Three states of sin. We're sinners who have transgressed, who bear a debt and are at enmity or at war with God. That's our, that's our fallen condition. Now let's read our text. At just the right time. Romans 5 now, starting in verse 6. For a while we were still helpless. At the right time Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would guide our thinking as we now look into your word. Lord, as we've rehearsed our condition Outside of Christ is one that is utterly hopeless and helpless except for you to move in our hearts and lives that we may turn to you. Lord, you're our only hope. And so I pray that you would guide us now as we look at your word and uh, try to make some application here. Lord, let your word speak uh, through me today, I pray. The gospel is clear and, and the, the price has been paid. You sent Jesus at just the right time. We've been looking at that. And at just the right moment, he died, Lord. Help us to see that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what, what I want to do is uh, verse 6. So I'm using the New American Standard here today. And so I'm going to take the three, phase, the three phrases of the verse. Those will be my three points. So uh, point one, while we were still helpless. Point two, at the right time. Point three, Christ died for the ungodly. That's our three points. And so we'll be referring back to six. That's a call it our guiding verse today as we look into this. And so while we were still helpless, the first part of verse six, while we we're still helpless, question we might ask is how or when were we helpless, Paul? Paul's the inspired author of Romans. 
and uh, a place at that point that he had not been. And uh, he, he, uh, is, as he writes this, we could ask him back. And when he says, while we were still helpless, well, how or when were we helpless, Paul? Well, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. God demonstrates his own, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When were we helpless? Well, when we were yet sinners, before, before our life had been changed. Uh, we were helpless. We were lost in sin. I love those two words at the beginning, but God. When you're reading in your uh, Bible, uh, you'll see that throughout uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But God, remember Noah, they're bobbing around in the ark for almost a year. And, uh, you know, it's like they're the only ones left alive on the earth, bobbing around in that ark. And then the text says, but God remembered Noah. And then he sent a wind and he started to dry out the earth. And pretty soon the ark, you feel a bump. And pretty soon it, it lands on Mount Ararat, Ararat and settles in and the water recedes. But God, here's another but God. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, it speaks to our point. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, but God being rich in mercy. When, when, were we, uh, when were we helpless, Paul? Well, when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, and uh, starting in about March, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll, do, we'll be having a series coming in the book of Ephesians. And one of the things we'll learn there, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 in Ephesians, in the NIV, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's all of us. Spiritually speaking, you're dead outside of Christ. And, in, and as he expands on the point later in chapter 2, it's in Christ that we're made alive. And it's by grace you have been saved. So uh, it is when we were utterly and totally helpless. Now, it's interesting here, if we, if we jump back to verse 7, because verse 8, when he says, but God, he's really pointing back to verse 7. So in 6, we're told we're helpless, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. So it's a rare thing for a person to die for another. We have accounts of it. It happens, but it's a rare thing. But it's for the righteous man or a good good man, but God demonstrates his love that while we're yet sinners. In other words, when we're neither good or neither righteous, that's when Christ died for, the, for, for us. Uh, it's remember our default condition. We're transgressors who hold an unpayable debt, and we're at enmity, enmity that is deep-seated dislike or ill will with God. That's our default position. That is when we were still helpless. While we were yet enemies. Look at verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved through his life. When were we helpless, Paul? When we were enemies. When we were enemies with God. That's our default position. We're born into sin. We're born as enemies of God. There's, uh, uh, that, this is the default. And, and that is when Christ died. Notice there's enmity. We're enemies. That's how or when we were helpless. Here's my last text uh, on this point. This is uh, Psalm 7. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Did you ever think of that? 
God has indignation every day. And if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow, made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. And you see the God of the universe who has his bow drawn, his aim is sure, and his target is you. Unless we repent, that's when we're helpless. We're God's enemies. We're sinners. We're transgressors. And we're in debt. That's when Jesus came to die at the right time. At the right time is our next uh, point in verse 6. While we're still helpless, at the right time. When, Paul, did Jesus die? Or when was the right time for Jesus to die? So that's where I wanted to take a moment just to talk about uh, time a little bit. I think it's important that we understand who our God is or a little bit of the characteristics of our God in us. And so when we speak of God in relation to time, um, God does not exist in time as we do. Now, we may, we may dip our toes in the deep end, but we're not going to go too far in, so don't get too uh, put off. But God does not experience, does not experience change. God does not change. God is. God does not become. God is. And so God, in that sense, does not experience time. He, he is aware of it. He's the creator of it. And Andy talked about that this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as soon as he created the heavens and the earth, time began because time measures change. What is one hour? What does that represent? Fifteen degrees rotation of the earth. That's what an hour is. It's movement. It's change. Time is change. So time measures change. God does not experience change. Therefore, God is not in time. But it's better to say God experiences duration. He's aware of it. But God lives outside of the universe and is aware of all that goes on it. He's an observer and his spirit occupies it. It's better to speak of God as infinite. Infinite in at least three ways. God is infinite in relation to himself. What do we mean by that? God is infinite in relation to himself. Well, he's absolute perfection. So anything God has, he has infinitely. God is what he has. And so whatever he has, he has infinitely. So... God has love. God is love. John 1, or 1 John 4.16, God is love. God is love to an infinite degree. It's not, it's not accurate to say God is loving necessarily. Yeah, he's loving. God is love itself to an infinite degree. God is truth to an infinite degree. God is mercy to an infinite degree. God is infinite in relation to himself. God, number two, God is infinite in relation to space. That's what we experience because of the creation. We exist in a creation. And God is infinite in relation to that space. And so that speaks of his immensity. There is nowhere that God is not present. We, we speak of this often, but it's important to be reminded of that. We call it omnipresent, but God is everywhere present. And therefore, because of that, God is not a part of the creation. It's not accurate to say that uh, anything in the creation, that God is there. 
in the sense that God does not occupy space. And so your dog or your cat is not God, is not a representation of God. It's a creature created by God. God is, exists so God is outside of space. So God is infinite in relation to himself. He's infinite in relation to space, and he's infinite in relation to time. There's no before. There's no after. It's just pure being. God is. There's no becoming in God, and that's why we can utterly trust him, because he does not change. God is. We change. We become. Hopefully we're becoming more like Christ. So what does this have to do with us? Well, we've already said for, for us, for mankind, time is a measure of change. I already mentioned the rotation of the earth, 15 degrees per hour. And so it's in time that we experience constant change. Constant change. Phil and I were talking just briefly this morning about getting older. I'm a lot older than him, by the way. But the, the point is, we age. We change nonstop. And this earth changes nonstop. God does not. And it's in time that God has chosen to work according to his own mysterious ordering of all that is. This is where God's providence, his sovereignty, where he guides the creation. He created it. He spun those planets into space and he could have, he he knew the moment he spun creation into space, he knew exactly how many years, months, days, hours, minutes, and seconds. And And the spirit would come in a woman there in Bethlehem. In, in, in Judea, and she would be with child of the Holy Spirit. To the nth degree, he knew the details of that. And he knew the moment when the Christ would die, 33-ish years later. Totally in control of time. Let's look at this uh, next slide here, Ephesians 1. Three to four, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's before time began. No creation yet. That we would be holy and blameless before him. The in love really, uh, it's in that verse, but it really is connected to verse five. Um, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Nothing's been spun into space. Nothing's created. And the Lord God already laid down his plan and providentially ordered. And he knows them that are his. It is then on that understanding that we have as finite and falling creatures. And now this uh, next slide. It's then. When did God help us, Paul? When we had no hope. And we're without God in the world. And now in Christ Jesus, who, who, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's when that was the right time. That was when Christ died to help us, when we had no hope and we're without God and we're brought near by the blood of Christ. So verse 6 again, while we were still helpless, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of us. We've already said there are, uh, that is our default mode. It's how we were born. It's when we were born. We've all fallen in Adam. We cannot not sin outside of Christ. We're shot through with it. That's who Christ died for. How did the death of Christ help us, Paul? 
I mean, what did that do for us? Look at verse 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Having been now been justified. This is huge. This is huge. Justification is the declaration of God uh, by God that, that we are not guilty, not guilty. It's a legal or a forensic term. It's a it's a court term. So it's, a, it's a, a declaration that we're no longer guilty, but how is he going to do it? It's on the basis of the sacrifice of the blood of Christ and the faith of the believer that puts their total trust on Christ and what he's done. And then the father sees the blood of Christ and says, not guilty. He, Jesus, if you look at uh, back up to chapter 4, verse 25, Chapter 4, verse 25 here in Romans. He, the, uh, God, uh, he, Jesus, was delivered over because of, our justific- uh, because of our transgressions. So Jesus was sacrificed because of our sins. That's why he had to go to the cross. That's why he had to be born as a man. God becoming man. Now you have Jesus with two natures. God and man lived a sinless life. To offer a sinless sacrifice, he had to die so that we could be justified. He delivered over because of our transgressions, and then he was raised because of our justification. So in the raising of Christ into newness of life is where the, the, the acceptance of the Father of the sacrifice made. Christ sacrificed his blood on the cross for our sins, and the Father accepts the sacrifice and resurrects him back to life, and he is our Savior uh, because of it. So we're justified uh, because of it. Now going on to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having now been justified by faith, there we are, we're declared righteous by faith in Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can have peace with God. It's possible now to not sin. In this life, we'll never not sin Completely, in other words, we, we still we're, we're, we're on the path of uh, becoming like Christ, sanctification, but it's possible now to actually do something that pleases God. Outside of Christ, I can't do that. I cannot not sin. Now I have the Spirit-given enablement to do things that actually bring pleasure to God to not sin. Because I can have peace with God. And the animosity is gone and reconciliation has happened and we're one with Christ. And we're, and, and we're living in fellowship with him. We having been justified by his blood. Another question, why blood, Paul? I mean, you know, why? Why blood? Well, Scripture gives us a couple of indications on that. Here in Leviticus, we have a passage. Uh, this is uh, Moses in the giving of the law and the sacrificial system. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. You see, blood by reason of the life. We'll talk about somebody. Boy, they gave their life blood to that. It's that idea, the blood by reason of the life. The life is in the blood. And so the, the Lord God says, I need blood. I need your life. You must die. That's what makes atonement. 
And Christ shed his blood. And according to the law in Hebrews, one may say almost all things are cleansed with blood. Remember Moses when they dedicated the tabernacle and he dipped uh, the hyssop in blood and he sprinkled the people even? Everything is cleansed with blood because without the shedding of the blood, there's no forgiveness. Having been justified by his blood because it's what God requires, a life. In the day you sin, you will die. So it requires a life. And the sinless Savior sacrificed his own blood so that we can be saved from the wrath of God through him. Saved from the wrath of God through him. Uh, look over. We, we Take a moment. Go to Romans chapter 1. This is uh, Paul talking to our default condition. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. The, the wrath of God is revealed, and the wrath of God is coming. And we experience, people experience uh, in this world the wrath of God in many forms, but there's an ultimate wrath that is yet coming. And it's been revealed because if we look at uh, the, the, verse 10 here in our passage in Romans 5, if while we were enemies, remember we're enemies, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Remember, our point here is Christ died for the ungodly. And the question we ask is, how did the death of Christ help us? And, and one, we've said that we've been justified by his blood. But, but here we can say that we are saved by his life. We are literally saved by the life of, of, of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I, that I already mentioned is the fact that the Lord God resurrected Christ to life again and accepted his sacrifice. His very life saves us. His death atones for our sin, and his life saves us. And here's a, here's a text here in Hebrews 7. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, this is Jesus as our great high priest. It's in a section that talks about uh, the, uh, the mysterious priest Melchizedek. And Jesus is on the order of Melchizedek. He's our great high priest. And because he continues forever, because he's alive, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede or make intercession for them. He is able to draw near through him since he always lives because he was resurrected and he lives. Christ died for the ungodly, but he raised him again to life. And in his life, we are saved. We've been reconciled, so we shall be saved by his life. At just the right time, Jesus died. Time ordained by the Father and eternity past before the creation ever was. No change, no time, just God. <laughs> and in his counsels, he established what will be. 
So there's a couple of conclusions that I want to draw with us. So if today you know Christ is, uh, you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, I, I, I can, I want to urge you to fall before Him in repentance. Our text today pretty clearly demonstrates that outside of Christ you're utterly helpless. There is no hope outside of Christ. That's all there is. Remember our default condition. We have transgressed the law of God, and as a result, we hold an unpayable debt, resulting in hostility, enmity, anger, war with God. That's our default condition. So you may say, well, I'm, I'm I'm a good person. But we work to demonstrate in Ephesians chapter 2 there that you have no hope in or without God in the world. There are no good people in God's eyes. That's me, that's you, that's everybody. There are no good people in our default condition. Maybe you say, I don't need God or I don't believe there is a God. But the passage we just read in Romans 1 makes it clear that no, but actually you do know there's a God, though you may have chosen to suppress that knowledge. Nonetheless, everyone knows there is a God. So my appeal is to be reconciled to Christ. Come to Him. He'll heal your sin. Bring a purpose and a hope that you've never known. Only Jesus can do that. And there's many here that can testify to the difference that Christ has made in their life. Bringing hope and purpose that we've never known. And we want that for you in the worst way. But then, many of us here know Christ as Lord and Savior, but then we struggle with assurance. And it's likely that some of us do struggle with the at-the-right-time salvation that we have in Christ. And, and sometimes we just don't feel it often. We need to remind ourselves that our assurance hangs on the object of our faith more than it does the faith itself. Our assurance hangs on the object of our faith more than it does the faith itself. In other words, our assurance is Jesus Christ in His blood. And the not guilty of the Father. And our assurance hangs on who the object of our faith is. Sometimes you'll hear it said that we need to do all that we can do and then God will do what only He can do. You know, you've heard that. When it comes to our salvation, though, that's at best confusing, if not uh, inaccurate and wrong. If we remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The faith itself is the gift of God. Everything of salvation is a gift. We need to remember that. So, the ground of our assurance, what's at the bottom? The ground. What do we hold on to? The ground of our assurance is the blood of Christ that was shed at the right time. And it's on the basis of the blood of Christ that we are declared not guilty and have come into the relationship with the Father. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your confidence is the blood of Christ. That is your plea. So it follows that once I've come under the blood of Christ, I can never lose my salvation. Ever. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but read, make a note to yourself and read John 6, 37 to 40, and it makes it very clear that the Father has given all those who believe to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, of all those that thy Father gives me, I lose none of them. 
When you are his, you are his forever. But then, faith can be a really fickle thing, right? Because life ebbs and flows. And sometimes your faith is burning hot, and other times it's like, boy, I'm barely holding on here, God. The faith can be really fickle, and it ebbs and it flows and it wanes. We need to remember that it is by the blood of the Lamb and His testimony that we overcome. That's it. Our only hope is Christ. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Let's pray. Lord, you are, you are great and you are God and you're worthy of all of our praise. Lord, outside of you, we are totally undone and, and, and we, are, we are lost and without hope. And we recognize, uh, Lord, that uh, you, you have a plan and, and you're saving people. You're, you're calling out a people for your name and Lord, we're just crying out to you this morning to say that we, we love you. Lord, there may be some that are hearing this today here in the room or maybe online that don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would work, do a mighty work in hearts and lives today. Help us all to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his shed blood has bought a, uh, purchased a place for us to spend eternity with you. And Lord, you're our only hope. Without you, we're utterly helpless. Thank you, though, Lord, at just the right time. Perfect timeline. You came and you died. Thank you, Father, that you accepted the sacrifice and raised him from the dead, that we too can know newness of life in him. Lord, we ask you to be glorified in us. Help us to uh, gain courage from the gospel, Lord. Help us that those that who don't know you to turn to it now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.